what I went through was very physical because my whole body would shake and my body was, she was working on a very physical level and she was moving things around and I could feel the energy moving and moving and moving. And then, you know, there's also purging, there's all the stories that you hear about purging and all of that, that all happened. But what started to also emerge were visions. And she was showing me my sister. She was showing me my father. She took me again to the other side. Welcome to Seeking the Self podcast. Where we explore how we find and lose ourselves in the modern world. We didn't take medicine. We didn't go to doctors. It was like a baptism by fire. It's simple. I try to make sure when I go to bed at night, I lie my head on the pillow and I think today's been a good day. I'm Dr. Aaron Bailick. And I'm Natalie Nahai. And this is Seeking the Self. In this episode, we meet Michelle. I started hearing ayahuasca, and I heard the word ayahuasca, and it kept coming back to me, and I was going, what is ayahuasca? So this is 15 years ago. And I thought, maybe that's, that's where I need to go. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about what you do now and how you came to do what you do, because it's quite an unusual story. The first thing is that some people would say I'm a shamanic practitioner. That means that I practice in a shamanic path. Other people would say one is a shaman. I don't use that term, but that, that's, that's the term that most people understand. Some people would say it's a curandero, a paco. Some people would say a healer. I don't call myself any of these names. I have studied, but I don't call myself that. So if one finds themselves on a path, say, what is the shamanic path? I'm putting this in quotes. It starts very, very early in life. And so I'd have to go back to when I was born. So when I was born, I was born without being able to hear. And without being able to hear, it does amazing things. Because what happens is one starts to notice things visually and through other senses. And because of the way that my parents brought me up, they allowed me to express myself in all kinds of ways. And when I saw things, they didn't say, no, that's not real. They just sort of said, yeah, of course you can see that. That's okay. I had an operation before I was two years old. I remember it. When I described it to my mother as a reoccurring nightmare, she said, I can't believe you can remember that. That would have been your operation to try and help you here. Fast forward, then I had like years and years of speech therapy to get all of that going. Now, all of this time I was seeing, all of this time I was feeling, I was picking up information. Of course I would, because what do you do when you have one sense that doesn't work? So after that, I was merrily going on my way. And sadly, in our family, we have had some deaths, one of which was very early for my father. And when my father passed, I wasn't there. The other kids were, but I wasn't there. That night, he came to me in a dream. 
He didn't speak to me. He just came through from the other side and took me through what I now would consider a vortex or a porthole. And we were swirling through this tunnel, and the tunnel had lights, and the tunnel had sound. There was all kinds of things going on within this tunnel. And when we got out to this other place, it was bliss, absolute bliss. I was so happy to be there with him. And I knew that he was all right. It was the most wonderful, warm, loving experience I had ever felt. And I loved my father dearly. So out from this bliss, the sort of golden fog, these people came forward. And I looked at them, and they all nodded, and they were really peaceful, and they're so happy. And then my father, I saw unite with them. And I thought, I'll stay here with them. This is so beautiful. And he shook his head, and he turned me around, and he threw me back through the vortex. And I woke up, and I knew that something extraordinary had happened. I knew it wasn't a dream. It was something very, very different. I kept it to myself about two, three years later, a friend of mine's mother, who is extremely psychic, I walked in and she said, you know. And I said, what do I know? She said, you know, I can see you've been there. She said, you need to read some people's work. Now, I didn't know about Kubler-Ross. I didn't know anyone had been researching. You know, I was like adolescent teenager, so I was in high school by then. So I started reading, and sure enough, there was the, the vortex was explained, the sounds were explained, everything was explained. The next thing is the one that really made me solidly look at it, which was an aunt of mine had an old photograph album. And I went to it, I was looking through it, but this particular album I hadn't seen before. And as I was looking at it, I said, oh, dad knew this person, or oh, this person was really close to dad. And she looked at me and she said, we lost him in the war. Your brother's named after him. And I went, ah. Oh. And then, then I went, oh, this person's close to dad. We lost them. And I went through, and every photo that I stopped at, the person had passed. They were on the other side with my father. That's when I really knew that there was a way to go between the worlds. Then, you, you know, you put things aside for a while. You go off and have a life. And I you know, went off to Norway and lived there for a few years. And, of course, they, they will acknowledge these things. You know, you get to talk to the Norwegians way up in the mountains. And they go, oh, yeah, there's spirit. The spirit's here. I ran into a person that worked with peyote. That opened doors. It was from the Miwok Nation, which is the nation that used to be in that area. And so we had sweat lodges. Images would come again. Visions, if one would, would come again. Vision quest. It was also the time of LSD. Um, not that I partook in that. I had uh, maybe I would, you know, go with LSD and then wait three years and then go again and wait three years and wait three years. And so there were things around that would help me to open the portholes. And then I would tell people things. Then fast forward, I went into acting, all kinds of things happened. Teachers started to cross my path. They started to teach me things. And then from there, I had a near-death experience. And that's what took me to Peru. When I was 49, I very sadly had to take care of my sister, a younger sister, until she passed. 
and she had breast cancer at a very early age. And my mother had this long story about cancer in my family. My mother had already only survived it, and I worked with her as well. So I was working with Lisa, and I knew that she would pass, and I knew that I'd have to be there and help her go, get to the other side. So I gave up living in London, and I went back to the States, and I spent this time with her, where, again, I met extraordinary people who helped us. What it did, however, was send me into grief because I lost my sister. I lost a man that I had lived with for seven years who was my best friend. This all in one year, I lost my first husband. And it was too much. It was way too much. I got back to the London and my back went in a spectacular way. I had a huge accident and I ended up in the hospital with a neurosurgeon saying, we have to go in, we have to go in now. Now, one of my uncles was a neurosurgeon, and he used to say, never go under the knife. So I said, you know what? My uncle, John, he says, never go under the knife. So can we? And he said, Michelle, I'm really sorry. You, we have to go now. And I went, okay, I'll sign the papers. Here we go. So I signed the papers. I go in, and I come back out, and it was an extremely long, long operation because when they got in, they realized my uh, central nervous system is back to front, and they hadn't found one like that before. So where he was normally rewiring in this way and cleaning up the disc and everything else, he said he didn't really know uh, how to deal with me. When I came out, he said, um, and I, you know, I have a morphine fog and I could understand, he said, we've cleaned it up as, as much as we can. We don't know about your left leg. We don't know how much you can use it. Um, I'm sorry. And I said, hey, you know, I'm alive, and I'm really happy for that. I'm a very athletic person. I was always a swimmer. I was always everything. You know. And I just went, well, I guess I have to rail against God, be really angry here for a while, and then accept what has happened, accept the deaths, accept that I had this accident, and accept that this operation has left me in this way. So there I was, laying on the ground with my very large dog next to me, going, when I get up, when I get up, something's going to change. And the pain was horrific. I believe if I hadn't had my daughter, I probably would have thought about, contemplated about leaving this, this earth. It was too, too much pain. So then I started hearing ayahuasca, and I heard the word ayahuasca, and it kept coming back to me, and I was going, what is ayahuasca? So this is 15 years ago, and I'm going, what is it? What is ayahuasca? I can't remember. And then I thought, wait a second. I worked with, you know, hundreds of other people, with a, a guy called uh, Stuart Wilde, who's on the other side, and I remember him telling a story about ayahuasca, and I thought maybe that's that's where I need to go because nothing else is happening. I went to all the specialists in London. Nothing nothing could be done. So there I was with two canes. It was about Easter time. A lot of people were around this table, one of which is a documentary filmmaker. And Wayne came in, and um, I said, when are you going to Everest? He said, I'm not. I'm going to Peru. And I said, ah. He said, take me with you. And 
I said, what are you doing? Ceremony. He said, how do you know I'm doing ceremony? And how do you know what ayahuasca is? Because I mentioned ayahuasca. He said, I don't know what it is. I said, I don't know. I know I know she can cure me. And it just fell out of my mouth. All my friends are looking at me, and they're just laughing, and they're saying, Michelle, there's no way you can get down the Amazon. You can't even walk to your kitchen without your canes. What are you going to do to get to the Amazon? I said, I don't know. But if someone asks me, I'll go. week later, I meet this woman, Nancy, and she's going to Peru. And she's with a group of Americans going to Peru, and she's done it before. I know nothing about this. All I know is this woman's going to Peru. Ayahuasca's calling me. Ayahuasca's in the jungle. I'm going to go to Peru. So I say to her, can you take me, please? And if I sign every piece of paper saying, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the one responsible for what happens to me, could I please go? She said, we don't have a psychotherapist. We have one more space. You're on. You're in. got into the jungle and at that time it was huts you had to kind of you know pull your bed apart to make a little nest for yourself to be in the maloka in the ceremonial room and they started work on me and they gave me one brew after another after another after another and what I went through was very physical because my whole body would shake and my body was she was working on a very physical level and she was moving things around and I could feel the energy moving and moving and moving and then, you know, there's also purging. There's all the stories that you hear about purging and all of that. That all happened. But what started to also emerge were visions. And she was showing me my sister. She was showing me my father. She took me again to the other side and said, you need to see everyone that you've lost. I had lost my mother by then and my, my spiritual godfather. I lost so many people, friends, every, you know, loved ones. And there they were. And she said, you need to go backwards and forwards. And now you need to grieve. And I opened up, and as a psychotherapist, I'd say that I did five years worth of grief work in the time that I was in the jungle. And as I was releasing and releasing, I was being healed. And the plant was helping me on a physical level, emotional level, mental level, and then the spiritual level. The doors just flew open. And then at the end, she said, oh, and by the way, your marriage is finished. And I went, what? <laughs> I thought about it, and I thought, you know, she's right. She's right. I do have to take that on board and understand that this cycle, because life isn't linear, this cycle is now finished. And this grieving time that I've had is now finished. Ayahuasca is a vine, and she grows along the Amazon, in the Amazon, in the jungle. And she has been worked with as a medicine plant by communities, tribes, for thousands of years. And there's, there's many forms of brewing. It's not just the vine herself, although she's called ayahuasca. She's put with other plants depending on where she is in the jungle and where she grows. So some are safe for Europeans to work with, and some aren't. About 415 known ways, they say, uh, the anthropologists have collected in the way to brew it. So what happens is one goes and surrenders to her. You never fight her because you never know on which level or layer she's going to work on. But when the time you get to be with her, she's like 
a very bitter, bitter medicine, liquid form. Some people have a full cup, some a half cup. It depends on what the ayahuasquero sees and is communicated with the plant. Now, the ayahuasquero I worked with, he studied from the time he was 10 years old and finished his training at 30. Many teachers. He had his father as a teacher because he's sixth generation ayahuasquero. And he also had other teachers throughout the jungle. It's like it's like a doctor. But the plant and the ayahuasquero or ayahuasquero, they're one together. The energy is amazing. And so she's telling him, and he's the human form that can start whistling in the spirit. There are are songs that hold throughout the ceremony, um, never stop. They're, they're called ikaros, and they're very beautiful. And you'll hear the song because it's starting to come in and change the energy and work with the plant. If you ask them, how they learned about the plants, they will say that the plant told them. By ingesting the plant, the plant told them how to use her. So someone, somewhere, ingested the plant, or the plant sang to them and called them, because there is a feeling that you're being called to work with her. I really believe in set and setting, have a big difference to how one uh, works with her. So I've only worked with her in the jungle, and I know that people, because I'm in ayahuasca aftercare, I got a lot of people after other people's ceremonies coming through. So I know that there's ceremonies that are held here and throughout Europe, et cetera, et cetera. I don't do that. I, I, number one, it's illegal in this country. Uh, it's legal in Peru. She is safely guarded there. She's a national treasure. So that's why I take people there. And also, the second reason being that that is her home. And she's wild. She's not cultivated. She's wild. And so I honor that the jungle is hers. And I understand a lot of people can't get there. So shall it be. I have no issue with people working with her outside. That's their business. So one of the things I'm interested in is when you reach a point at which you realize that you have a path that's got your name on it, mm -hmm. um, that's calling you, how do you, how do you recognize that in yourself when you kind of go, okay, this is actually what I'm meant to be doing. I'm going to let go of these other projects or these other parts or these relationships. What is it about the quality of that point? Is it a realization? Is it something that hits you? How do you know? It feels to me that it, it unfolds. There's an unfolding. And if I'm being in the moment in life, the unfolding just naturally happens. And we know we're in the right place for ourselves and others in path and service because things just go into synchronicity. So when people say, you know, it goes into sync, it really does. This just happens. And people go, well, how does that just happen? And it's, it lines up. Like attracts like. The vibration attracts the vibration. And so it unfolds. If I block something with my mind, if my, you know, ego gets in the way, what we call an ego, mind gets in the way I could block the flow easily my mind is my worst enemy it can come up with all kinds of stories and imaginations and projections and assumptions like anybody's but if I can hollow myself out and stay clear then it unfolds
I have two questions in response to that. The first is um, that you you often find when you ask people who who quote unquote found themselves and rooted themselves in something that in order to get there they had to really hit some kind of personal rock bottom and they might describe it in different ways but a collapsing of self or the self that they thought or the life that they'd built and it seems that sometimes that's very physical other times it's more psychological or emotional but it's all linked um so my question is do you think that it's it's part of the cycle of things to dip into chaos and to struggle and to deconstruct in order to rebuild is that part of the key of finding the self or selves Absolutely. In my case, absolutely. There's, you know, through everything that we hit, it's like initiation rites, through pain, through crisis, through failure. If we let them define us and we become victims, a subpersonality or persona of a victim, then we're lost. You know, that's, 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 that's the ego taking over. If we get through it and look at it as an initiation rite, as hard as it is, as painful and heartbreaking as it is, if we can walk through that pain and crisis and failure, then it strengthens the self. So very often we have to come in on our knees because if it was an easy journey, then what are we learning? You know, it's it's through all the 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 bumps and grinds and the the bashes that that we become who we are. It's by walking through it moment to moment to moment to moment. So, in walking through the grief that I walked through, and the grieving time that that was, it's why I can deal with death and dying and grieving because I walked through it. If we walk through it, we can turn and we can guide other people through. We can help others. If we don't do the work, if we don't do the grit, that opportunity is lost. So what I would say now, after 15 years of working with both medicines and other medicines, is it an ease to work through crisis, pain, crisis, and failure. What I have learned are different transpersonal, what I would call transpersonal qualities that help me in my life that are part of myself connected to higher self. These could have been lost in my shadow. Faith, trust were lost in my shadow. Now everything in the shadow isn't a bad thing, an ugly thing. It can be a transpersonal quality that we've kicked aside because something was so painful that we go, I'll never trust love again. I'll never trust, you know, anything again. I won't have faith again. But in the process of working with plant medicine and working with my clients, faith and trust have come to me. I hope compassion and empathy are there. There are very so many transpersonal qualities. You know, there's joy and enthusiasm and wonder and awe. These things are wonderful you know they're there but I would say it's the faith it is the you know letting go and letting God I go okay so like I said when I came back and I went okay I have a 25 year old marriage here what do I do um getting help was going we are two human beings in the world went to a wonderful uh, psychotherapist a marriage counselor partnership counselor so that we could go how do we bring this to an end and we had to lay everything out on the table and it was very very painful 
And that's what I mean by doing the work, doing the grit. It's very, it's very different way of living. Of course, I grieve if someone is lost. Of course, I feel. And now, you know, I'm 60, I'm, I'm almost 65, so I hope I've learned a few things on how to get through it and trust that I'll get through the other side. I had to get stuck with my back, literally stuck on the floor. For some reason, I had to get that stuck. And I was stuck when you were talking about on all levels and layers when people go through things crisis. It was a crisis of a physical crisis. It was an emotional crisis because of the deaths and also the end of a marriage. And, um, and, and really, it was reconstructing my life. Everything changed after that. So sometimes when we're stuck, we call it face-to-face -face with the second step. So you can look at it and go, oh, I'm bashing my head against this wall. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And then within a day, you can look over it and go, there it is. The worst thing to do is to go backwards from it and deny that you're stuck or deny the feelings of it. So I go, stay in it. Seek help if you can by someone that can guide you through it. You talk about faith and trust, and well, in one of our other uh, conversations with, with the priest, she talked about faith and trust as well. I wonder if it's just a, if it's one of the products of culture, but we're living in quite a secular time, certainly in the UK, and I think that in different parts of the world, it's, there's a shift or a battle between these things. I don't have much faith or much trust. <laughs> and I wonder if for people who don't, who are drawn, well, I feel drawn to these sorts of things because I think it's, I've had some positive experiences with, with it in the past, but there's a, a reluctance to let go or to believe that something is greater than ourselves or that there's meaning. And I wonder for people who feel that way, but feel like it would be quite nice to have a sense of trust or faith or, or connection with something bigger, what might you say to that? When we let go, that's a huge you know, leap of faith. When we let go and allow, when we're at that stage, of self-development, then it will, it will naturally unfold. So I would look at the blocks. I would go, okay, this person is longing to surrender, longing to have the experience of trust and faith. What block, particular block, is getting in that individual's way? And it can be different from person to person to person, depending on what their own history is, what their story is. So I would work then on saying, okay, where is it in the story that the block was set up? Because you weren't born with the block. The block happened from some experience that took the faith and locked it up into the, the unconscious world. Took it away, took the trust. Now, it may, in my case, have been a, a death of a parent, took the trust away. And well, how can I trust a world that takes away a father when he's only 42 years old? Now, take it away. Take love away, take all of this. But that's when we've disconnected, right? So within the way of the healer, we dismember, and, you know, we're in pieces from experiences, and then we remember ourselves. We have to remember and reconnect. And, you know, the even religion comes from, the word religion is the, it comes from the Latin word, to connect. Religion was about connecting. 
I think now there's a crisis with people because organized religion on the whole has not served to connect anymore. So it's hard to have faith and trust. My grandmother's so easy in her faith and trust in the church, and it's so easy. So I look at it, and I see the plant medicines, and I see all these different paths that are starting to, to surface, to say, here we are, to remember who you are, to remember the self, and to connect. And once we reconnect, then faith and trust come. It's the belief of it. And we're never not tested. If you think that somebody gets to a point where, okay, everything's smooth, no. It's not a world that's all sweetness and light. It's trying always to stay in the light and to stay in the balance of harmony, no matter what happens with us or with those around us. Stories are really powerful things. And what is it about that trajectory that she took that you can identify in your own? And what can you take forward with that? I'm Dr. Aaron Bailick. And I'm Natalie Nahai. And this is Seeking the Self. <laughs>